Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. During its sometimes awkward years of adolescence, 1896 to 1945, Utah was gradually incorporated into the American political, social, and economic mainstream. Urban and industrial influences supplanted agrarian traditions, displacing people socially, draining the countryside of population, and galvanizing a critical crisis in values and self-identification. Some of the themes there in an interesting new book out from University of Utah Press, co-published with Utah State Historical Society, is called The Awkward State of Utah, Coming of Age in the Nation. And the authors are Charles S. Peterson, Professor Emeritus of History at Utah State University, and Brian Q. Cannon, Professor of History and Director of the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. Brian Cannon joins me for the hour today. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Brian Cannon is author of numerous books, including Reopening the Frontier, Homesteading in the Modern West, and co-editor with Jesse Embry of Utah in the 20th Century, and Immigrants in the Far West, Historical Identities and Experiences. And uh, that is, I guess, either out or coming out from U of U Press this year as well. It's just out, yeah. Just out. Now, Awkward State of Utah, that'll be coming out in uh, just a few weeks, I believe. That's that's right, yes. I just uh, went through the index yesterday. Okay. the, the it's whole nearing publication, the whole process. I wonder if you could, uh, if we could start where you do in the book. Um, just a interesting sort of life sketch of one Thomas Seymour. Yes. Yeah. Um, Thomas Seymour uh, grew up in uh, Rockport. It's up in uh, Summit County, east of uh, the Salt Lake Valley, and uh, he's the sixth of eleven children. And uh, the Transcontinental Railroad passed near his home, but um, despite that, uh, he lived uh, a very isolated existence, um, very primitive uh, conditions. Um, He was uh, taught at home by his father. Um, They often got uh, snowed in in the winter, and um, their house was uh, heated with a wood stove, and um, they had uh, candles and coal oil lamps to provide light. Um, they had a, an ox team. They were too poor to buy a team of horses, and so it took them uh, three days to travel from their house in Rockport down to uh, Salt Lake. And um, so Seymour was interesting to me uh, because his um, adult working life coincides with the years that we focus on in this book, the first uh, 50 years of statehood. And uh, you can see the impact of changes um, simply over the course of his life. Uh, he started out uh, in his 20s, tending horses and driving teams at a livery stable. And then he got a job uh, delivering mail with a horse-drawn mail wagon. Um, in 1914, he started uh, using a truck to deliver mail. And then in the 1920s, when so many uh, Utahns were moving out of the countryside into cities and suburbs. He moved uh, into a tract house in Salt Lake City and began selling electrical appliances, mass-produced appliances. Uh, in the 20s, is a big era of electrification. Um, and then um, he, gets a, he decides to go out and uh, open a restaurant at the new uh, Salt Lake Airport. So he opened a cafe there and operated the Salt Lake Airport Cafe for... Uh, 14 years uh, from 1931 up until uh, the end of World War II. And uh, he met people from all over the world, showing the impact of, um, you know, Utah's incorporation within the nation and the world, and eventually had a chance with a bit of help from the pilot to actually uh, fly a plane over the mountains where he'd once driven uh, the, horse, the horse-drawn uh, wagon. 
Mm-hmm. And you, just a fun little encapsulation of a lot of the changes that occurred. Yeah, in, in this one interesting life. Um, and uh, you quote a writer who says that, uh, theorizes that he may be the only person to drive oxen and pilot a plane. That's right, yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's that's just amazing. He, he f- was unique in some ways, I'm sure. It sounds like an early adopter, you know. Kind of a kind of a adventurous, but he he's typical of what happened to uh, to Utah during this time. Right. Yeah. I mean, we just we see the immense amount of technological change uh, that occurred in this era, and the ways in which uh, people's lives uh, intertwined with developments across the nation, and in terms of meeting people from around the world who came to Salt Lake and flew into the airport. Um, the beginnings, at least, of what we'd know today as globalization, even though that's not a term that they were using at the time. Oh. We think about things fast today, and they may well have sped up from then, but, uh, you know, a man who drove ox uh, cart, <laughs> now he's running a cafe at the airport. That that does that's a is an interesting and very appropriate encapsulation. Uh, I wonder about the title, The Awkward State of Utah. Yeah, well, obviously, there's a there's a play on words there with with a dual meaning, um, and we're referring uh, primarily to um, the awkward uh, adolescence of Utah, the coming of age of Utah, uh, with it within the nation. It's um, you know shedding of um, some distinctive uh, features of its adolescence, its maturation as an adult. It also um, simply um, plays up on. You know the um, popular perceptions of Utah as being a bit a bit different and and distinctive, and um, so does does it fit within the nation? Yes, but uh, is is it an awkward fit? Is it difficult to fit the piece into the puzzle? Sometimes yes, and so that's that's kind of the origin for that that term in the title. Uh, I, w- I want you to maybe compare contrast. Uh, of course, Utah is what you study, but uh, you know if you take a neighboring state. Colorado or something, you know, Utah's maybe the more awkward, the more, the more unique teenager. In the yeah, bunch. Um, I, I think uh, the, the the history of of the state in the in the 19th century, you know, its colonization by Mormons, the Mormon majority, the tensions uh, between uh, Mormons and uh, lapsed Mormons and outsiders, um, practice of polygamy. Uh, the presence of theocracy, uh, the distinctive uh, communal approach to land settlement and resource usage. Um, all of those things make Utah's history um, really flavorful and delightful um, and uh, different from, from, from the typical um, you know, uh, path that was followed. I mean, Utah had uh, an army of occupation come in in the 1850s to well, a supposed rebellion. Um, Utah um, faced a concerted campaign on the part of the U.S. Congress and the courts to uh, stamp out the practice of plural marriage and to eliminate uh, theocracy. And so those, those are things that are, while there were tensions in all territories between the territorial population and the federal government, the, temp- the tensions were greatly amplified here in Utah. One of you takes back to the 1890s, um, and uh, we often focus on the tensions in Utah, but you uh, you focus as well on the currents that were happening nationally, 
And I guess there became a time when the national impetus became we've got to assimilate all of these areas. We, you know, we want manifest destiny. We, we, we want all of this territory to be part, officially part of the U.S. And that was a big impetus behind you know, ratcheting up pressure on polygamy and, and other forces. That, that's absolutely correct. Uh, yeah, there was um, a sense on the part of the United States that we want to incorporate all of these uh, lands and peoples within the American system, and that requires um, some, some uniformity. It requires uh, that people buy into the nationalistic viewpoint, that people become 100% American and patriotic. And so that was, uh, Mormons are one of the um, focuses for that nationalizing effort. Uh, American Indians are another focus. Uh, as you move into the 1890s and, uh, and beyond, you have uh, imperialism with you know, new territories being acquired, Hawaii, and then um, the Philippines and uh, Puerto Rico. And so even beyond the bounds of the continental United States, the um, American politicians and statesmen were looking to try to meld all of these people into um, one great whole. Maybe we take a snapshot. 1896, there's a lot of pride, right, that we've all finally been able to resolve some of these issues. Uh, We're gaining statehood, um, but still some tensions remain. Um, and so you have a snapshot of the, of, you know, the, the tabernacle and the, and that convention. Will you tell me a little bit about that? Okay. Well, yeah, there was a, a, a great, uh, finely orchestrated uh, celebration of statehood uh, in 1896 that took place in the tabernacle. Um, planners had uh, done a very good job of trying to ensure that. Uh, diverse constituencies within the state, at least if we're talking about uh, Anglo constituencies, um, were, were represented there at that celebration. So you had um, different uh, religious groups being represented, uh, different uh, elements of the business community being represented, and there was a, an attempt to uh, unite uh, or to present a united front to show that Utah was ready to take its place in the nation, that we were abandoning the uh, religious divisions that existed in the past, that we'd embraced uh, national political parties, and that we were going to move forward and unite to uh, promote the prosperity of Utah and to contribute to the prosperity of the nation. So that was the vision um, in January of 1896. The problem, though, is that uh, it, it breaks down after that point in time. There still was a lot of uh, distrust, uh, within the community, and um, there were lots of unresolved questions. Uh, for instance, should uh, prominent uh, Mormons, including uh, leaders of the church, general authorities of the church, uh, be eligible to uh, represent the state in the uh, U.S. House and U.S. Senate? Um, you know, to, to what degree uh, has the church really left polygamy behind with the 1890 Manifesto? Uh, we know now that that wasn't the case at all, that particularly in the upper echelons of the church, uh, many church leaders were continuing to cohabit with their plural wives and were uh, continuing to take new plural wives also. And so those types of tensions uh, had yet to be resolved, 
And so in, in the aftermath, in the 20 years after statehood, um, Utahns were left to try to sort that out uh, politically in the early 20th century. Um, uh, Non-Mormon uh, economic leaders in Salt Lake County established uh, a separate political party. They were concerned that uh, Mormons were taking over both the Republican and Democratic parties and that they were going to wind up with the same situation that they'd been fighting in the territorial era under theocracy. Mm-hmm. One, of, one of the stipulations, I think, or the goals, there is polygamy, and the, the national leaders said we can't have this outlier in, in communal living or type of living. And the other was we, we can't have this union of church and state. Right? We have to separate, right? Right, right. And so the, the concern then is if you have prominent uh, Mormons, general authorities, serving um, in uh, the Congress, uh, serving as governors, and so forth, do you really have a situation where the prophet remains still in control and where politicians owe their ultimate allegiance not to the U.S. Constitution, but uh, to whoever the president of the LDS Church happens to be? And so that was, that was a great concern. And it, it, um, it, it rolls over into other issues in the progressive era, um, early in the 20th century, uh, prohibition being, being a key one where because of the LDS Church's word of wisdom, um, there was a sense, even though prohibition was a national moral progressive crusade, that in Utah, if Utah were to adopt prohibition, this would amount to the Mormon majority foisting its ideals um, onto the entire population. Mm -hmm. And then Utah, ironically, became, I think they were the state that voted to repeal prohibition later on. Yeah, which, which caused uh, Utah was for late leaders. to adopt uh, prohibition on on the state level, and um, this comes as a surprise to many people, given the fact that uh, most um, that the majority in Utah um, subscribed, at least uh, technically, to the to the word of wisdom. But um, there was tremendous concern on the part of Reed Smoot, an apostle who served as a senator from Utah and on the part of um, Joseph F. Smith, who served as the prophet, that if the Church were to come out wholeheartedly in favor of statewide prohibition or national prohibition, that um, this would uh, cause the intricately crafted alliance between Mormons and non-Mormons to crack, that uh, non-Mormons would say, uh, this is is theocracy all over again. Mm -hmm. And so that helps to explain why Utah didn't embrace prohibition until late in the game politically, and it also helps to explain uh, why uh, Utah becomes the state that um, cast the deciding vote, uh, the 36th state, uh, to vote in favor of repeal of prohibition. I'm curious what the thinking of the, uh, the top LDS church leaders was. Uh, we're, you know, we're maybe being forced to, or we're giving up control of the state, you know, of still, you know, have ecclesiastical religious influence, but yeah, le- letting um, go of that, it, I don't know. It's, it, it, was, um, it, it was a difficult uh, issue for, for leaders of the Church, and um, Joseph F. Smith, as prophet uh, early in the 20th century, uh, publicly endorsed uh, William Howard Taft's uh, candidacy for the presidency in 1912 when he was running for re-election. He prints an editorial in the church's magazine, The Improvement Era, uh, directly endorsing Taft. Um, 
and you know many church leaders felt that they should continue to be able they should be able to continue to speak out on political matters as they were accustomed to doing in the 19th century um, on the other hand um, many uh, people within the community, including many Mormons, uh, felt that that was no longer appropriate for church leaders to uh, take stances um, and take advantage of their position by, you know, in a, in a public way, for instance, um, printing an editorial um, in the church magazine or something like that, endorsing endorsing a political view. Yeah. Uh, that's a, it was a very difficult issue in the uh, 1930s. Uh, the church's first presidency editorialized against the re-election of Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1936, uh, recruited uh, the president of BYU, Franklin S. Harris, to run against um, Albert Thomas, uh, Utah's uh, Democratic senator. Um, and... Uh, you know there was there was tremendous resistance in the uh, across the state to continued attempts by uh, church leaders to exert political influence in this fashion but um some church leaders felt that it was their duty to to do so uh that uh, their their mission extended beyond spiritual matters and into uh, temporal uh, economic and political matters and those types of things yeah, and those uh, this discussion right here, you could, you know, that could describe uh, some debates that are happening right now. Absolutely, uh, where, yes. Where should the church be? When should they speak out? And some some people complain the church has too much influence when it when it does uh, speak out. Let's right. take let's take a break. Um, and when we come back, I want to talk about a, another well, several issues, but to maybe begin with immigration. Um, as I was reading uh, passages about immigration uh, in just the decades after 1896, again, uh, you could rip these words from today's headlines. Uh, some of this has stayed the same. Uh, we'll talk about that, the agrarian to urban uh, transformation, and some uh, interesting uh, people. I want to talk about Moses Goodmanson, uh, who is a professor of violin and orchestra at Brigham Young University, uh, who has a very interesting history. More following the break. This is State of the Arts. Every home should have a work of original art, according to Alice Merrill Horn, an early Utah legislator who ran for office in 1898 on a platform of advancing the arts. Representative Horn wrote legislation that organized the nation's first state arts council, established a statewide art competition, and appropriated state funds for a collection of work by Utah artists that continues to this day. She encouraged schoolchildren from around the state to contribute nickels and dimes from their milk money to buy art for public places such as schools and libraries. That early investment has paid off. Utah is now home to more than 9,000 professional artists, and Utah's art galleries are a $159 million industry. State of the Arts is brought to you by the Cache Valley Center for the Arts in Logan, Utah, with a cooperative gallery featuring the work of more than 30 participating artists. Details at cachearts.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking about a new book. It's, uh, it'll be out soon from University of Utah Press, co-published with the Utah State Historical Society. It's called The Awkward State of Utah, Coming of Age in the Nation, 1896 to 1945. The awkward part is uh, this play on adolescence. This is uh, Utah's adolescence. 
Utah was gradually incorporated into the American political, social, and economic mainstream. Utah remains, though, in many ways unique. And uh, we're we, we talking about this interesting history with uh, a co-author of the book, Brian Cannon, who's professor of history and, and director of the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. You're welcome to join the conversation. We'd love to have your perspective at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Our email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. So before the break, um, Professor Cannon, I, I mentioned immigration. I want, just want to read a, a brief passage from the book. Uh, In the decades after 1896, Utah experienced an influx of thousands of Southern and Eastern European and Japanese immigrants. Uh, Skipping ahead a little bit, defenders of traditional America charged that these new immigrants were inferior, dangerous, and incapable of assimilating because they were largely non-Protestant, nationalistic, poorly educated, and dark-complexioned. Their immigration created islands of ethnic diversity. Uh, That particular paragraph... Uh, you know, maybe some changes in emphasis, but again, you could rip that from today's headlines. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the key functions of history is it allows us to hold up a mirror to ourselves and to see uh, reflected in slightly different fashion, but still with a lot of similarities, uh, events that have occurred in the past and their implications for for the present, and you're absolutely right. Um, we continue to be concerned or hear concerns about um, the ability of new immigrants uh, from around the world to assimilate or um, coming in from uh, different uh, traditions, and uh, definitely that was the case in uh, the early part of the 20th century, that a lot of old stock Utahns and Americans at large, uh, this isn't only a Utah development, but Americans at large were concerned that these uh, largely non-Protestant immigrants uh, with lower uh, literacy levels and uh, different complexions, that they were going to be this, uh, as one commentator said, an undigestible lump in the American polity. Mm. And so islands of, of diversity, which could, you know, can cause some, provoke some fear in, in the surrounding people. So you, you had uh, counties like Salt Lake, Tooele, and Carbon counties. Right, yeah. And so um, the immigrants tended to uh, concentrate in areas where there were uh, jobs in mining and smelting and on the railroads. In fact, many of them uh, had been recruited as contract laborers. Uh, It was illegal to bring in contract labor, but a lot of uh, contract laborers were nevertheless recruited and brought in um, from Japan, from Greece, uh, from Italy, um, from um, Slavic nations. um, And uh, many of them came as um, single young men. Most of them didn't intend to stay permanently. Uh, They were saving money to, to return home. Uh, many of them were sending large amounts of their paychecks home, um, and so there was concern that um, these people were simply bleeding the state dry of funds. And, um, you know, there were the um, social issues that come from having a footloose, uh, single male population uh, living in these uh, communities. And, um, and there, were, there were just all sorts of concerns um, that uh, old-timers had with them. And the, the new workers were, um, their wages were good compared to what they could earn in um, their home countries. 
but the working conditions under which they operated were atrocious in many cases. Um, very dangerous work and uh, difficult, uh, dirty work. And uh, so there were concerns on the part of many of the workers uh, with regard to how do we get the attention of corporate management. Um, in many cases, a lot of the stockholders in these mines and railroads lived out of state. How do we get their attention? What can we do in order to uh, provide for insurance in the event of injury? What do we do in order to uh, provide for um, decent wages and for at least a modicum of safety in the mines and smelters? So that must have exacerbated the whatever tensions there were because, because a lot of the workers were immigrants, right? And that's, so if that's, you have a right. labor so, union, it's going to be suspicious. Absolutely, yeah. Is, are these uh, workers bringing in foreign uh, Marxist ideas from abroad? Um, are uh, these workers anarchists? Um, we can't we can't trust them uh, because they're from outside. Even though uh, many of the leaders in the labor movements were uh, homegrown Americans, um, the 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 fact that most of the workers were immigrants uh, caused. Uh, Many, in fact, most uh, old stock Utahns to to uh, fear uh, the labor movement in Utah. And when workers went out on on strike, when violence erupted, uh, even if it was the fault of management, uh, the strikers were generally blamed. And um, it was uh, the the management that that stood for law and order and these types of things. So were, the, were these immigrants, they were gradually assimilated, were they? Or, uh, you know, it's a bumpy road, but... Yeah, well, um, at least a third of the immigrants from, from Italy went home, um, and probably um, the same percentage of Greeks. But um, what happened over time is that many who had intended to go home wound up staying. Um, in many cases, they would... Um, send for their family members if they were already married, or in other cases, they would write home and ask their families to uh, send someone over to, to be their, their wife. And um, so my former neighbor, who I write about in the, in the book, uh, Janine Giroux, um, her parents uh, were immigrants from Italy. Her father came over to work in the um, Bingham Canyon mines, and uh, Eventually, um, he decided he was going to stay. He wrote home and um, corresponded with his family, and they said, well, how about so-and-so? And he said, oh, I remember her. She was a little schoolgirl when I left. Well, now she was in her late teens, and so she came over. Um, he met her at the train station, took her to a saloon, and they were married by a Mormon bishop there. Hmm. Yeah. No, there were there were well, lots of people like that wound up, you know, deciding to stay to to mm -hmm. uh, plant roots here in America. Yeah, was this uh, how much of this was Mormon conversion? Um, moving relatively um, few of the immigrants uh, converted to Mormonism. Some of them did, though, but many of them um, who chose to be uh, religiously involved uh, retained their. Ties to their traditional religions, to Catholicism, to the Greek Orthodox religion, and um, so there, there was there was some conversion on the part of immigrants. Um, we see that on the part of some Japanese immigrants as well, uh, who chose to stay. Uh, some converted to Mormonism, uh, but many others uh, remained uh, Buddhist. So no, 
Uh, and, uh, and of course, uh, I think still all during the time of, uh, of your book, um, if you converted to Mormonism in uh, you know a foreign land, you were advised to stay there. And oh, that's right. I, yes, yes, up Zion, I, I, as ab- they say absolutely. There. And so, um, most of the immigrants who are coming in by this point in time, there still are some uh, Mormon converts who are coming in uh, after World War One. Uh, there's a large influx of of Mormon converts from Germany who, who came to to Utah. But uh, yes, you're right. By and large, uh, by the early part of the 20th century, uh, church members were no longer being encouraged to. Uh, gather to Zion. They were instructed, stay in your own lands unless you have assurance that you have a good job and you have the ability to support yourself if you come to America mm-hmm. as a Mormon convert. If you just joined us, we're talking about Utah. We're talking about Utah's adolescence, and that's reflected in the title of this uh, new book. It's to uh, be out soon from University of Utah Press, The Awkward State of Utah, Coming of Age in the Nation. My guest is uh, Brigham Young University professor, and director of the Charles Red Center for Western Studies, Brian Cannon. If you'd like to join the conversation, you're uh, certainly encouraged to do so. 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. Toll-free number. And our email is upraxcess at gmail.com. Upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. There's a... Uh, uh, you talk about the labor movement. We talked about that a little bit. I want to uh, follow up with that. There's a... Uh, Several, there are several pictures in the book, and the one I'm looking at is on uh, page 250. Uh, it's uh, captioned, The grieving family of Levi Jones surrounds his coffin following his death in the catastrophic Winter Quarters mine explosion in 1900. And uh, there's the family and, uh, and the coffin of, uh, of Levi Jones. Just one example of uh, miners and other workers who, who died, very dangerous occupations, my my question is: Did the you know the the labor conflicts the, the, in Utah did they follow generally the arc the way they did nationally? Or were there differences? Well, um, there 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 are uh, differences, but uh, but generally they followed uh, the, the the same arc that you see in um, labor conflicts nationwide, with um, you know some some uh, limited successes in the progressive era. Uh, in terms of um, enactment of restrictions and safety regulations and eventually uh, workmen's compensation and those types of things. Then you see uh, repression of uh, organized labor during the First World War. Uh, That was uh, not unique to Utah. That was uh, common across the nation. And then in the 1920s, um, businesses attempted to, um, well, they attempted to supplant unions by saying we'll provide benefits to workers you don't need the union at all and you see a tremendous drop in union membership and um, unsuccessful strikes and uh, then it's finally in the nineteen thirties when um, the federal government uh, guaranteed workers the right to organize to bargain collectively and you see uh, union membership in Utah increasing sevenfold within just a couple of years, and similar trends in the nation at large. Uh, one of the issues in, in Utah that plays out um, a bit um, distinctively is that um, when the federal government finally granted workers the uh, right to organize, um, 
it appeared for a time that a uh, communist-led union might uh, be in the ascendancy, but uh, this this made um, the more mainstream unions much more palatable uh, in the eyes of, of, of Utahns. And so you see tensions between those two unions infighting, um, and eventually uh, you have you have the the mainline unions, um, United Mine Workers, and so forth. Um, and the Western Federation of Miners gaining the upper hand. There's a very interesting couple of passages here I want to reference right now. Um, uh, the changes that were happening all over the nation and happened in Utah as well. You, you write, from time to time, significant advances in red-letter days like the arrival of electricity or paving of a town's thoroughfare called for special celebrations. And you talk about when the 1,500 residents of Salina, nearby communities, uh, pulled out all the stops to celebrate the paving of Main Street. We, we take this for granted now. A big deal then. Yeah, well, I mean, there were very few paved roads in in uh, Utah in the uh, progressive era. When you move out of um, the the main cities, even when you move just barely south of of Provo into Springville, I mean, there was one paved road in Springville. Everything else was uh, dirt road, and um, you know, when when you get uh, paving, obviously, uh, you you clean up the town a lot. Um, you do away with with the muddy roads, and uh, it really facilitates uh, transportation. Electricity uh, added um, several uh, waking hours to to the day. You know, it, it increased uh, people's uh, daytime by three or four hours, um, and uh, it made it much easier to uh, accomplish tasks and uh, so these were these were occasions for for tremendous uh, celebration and they really um, reduced the isolation also uh, between communities once you had a paved paved road that connected you with other communities uh, the speed with which you could move from one place to the next increased phenomenally yeah that's it. we do take electricity for granted as well it, it, yeah adding day Daylight, essentially. Right, daylight. right. That reminds me, uh, I was hauling hay with a friend one time for his grandfather, and uh, darkness fell, and I thought, okay, the, the day's over, the work's done. And then his grandfather flipped a switch, a floodlight near the barn, and said, go ahead and finish the job. So, 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 so <laughs> Yeah. D- and, disappointed uh, you know, as a young was, man. Um, one of the big selling points for electrification is that uh, you could have lights in the barn, you could have lights out in the farmyard, and uh, you could um, continue. You can continue to work. You know, you could work essentially um, summer hours throughout the year. <laughs> yeah, it added to the productivity. Um, this is a very interesting story. Um, occasionally, you write, elements of Utah's cultural past resurfaced, creating jarring elements in the modern landscape. This is the story of Moses Goodmanson, a professor of violin at Orchestra at Brigham Young University. And if he was just that, that would be a rather prosaic tale. <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> he was homesteading out there, and he started to feel like the last days had begun. What happened then? Okay. Well, um, yeah, it. Uh, he began to get these uh impressions at the time of the um, flu epidemic that occurred right at the end of the First World War. And uh, so he was concerned about, about that, concerned about sanitation, and then he got the idea, well, we could move out away from uh, all of these uh, people and this sickness and move out into, into the desert 
and homestead some land and, uh, and live communally. And so um, they looked back to the United Order uh, experiments that had been undertaken in Brigham Young's time in the 1870s, where uh, people lived communally, and um, looking back to places like Orderville in southern Utah. And so he got a bunch of people uh, from Utah County, from the Springville area, to follow him out um, into the West Desert, and they established a commune out there. They were vegetarians, and um, this, they planted a huge garden, and as often occurred in um, farm country out in the West Desert, um, you had all sorts of um, wild animals, uh, rabbits and wild horses and so forth, that came in and ate all of their vegetables, <laughs> and so they didn't have much food for a while as vegetarians. Uh, but um, he was seen simply as um, kind of eccentric, but uh, okay, I guess. And so uh, church, uh, the church leaders established a branch of the church there in his community. But as time went on, uh, Goodmanson turned to um, other elements of historical Mormonism, um, not strictly polygamy, but uh, something uh, similar. He introduced a doctrine that he called wife sacrifice, which was uh, essentially wife swapping. But uh, his, his intent was that this is going to uh, reduce selfishness if we have all things in common. That should include not only material possessions, but uh, spouses also. And at that point in time, uh, church authorities uh, stepped in and excommunicated him and disbanded the branch. And eventually the little commune failed out there. But um, yeah, there are these intriguing throwbacks to the past as... Um, Utah's moving into a modern era. Uh, the past and uh, historical ideals uh, continued to inspire uh, some Utahns, as they did Goodmanson. Yeah, it made me wonder uh, how many stories like this are, are out there that we, you know, that we don't know. I guess that's the value of history. Uh, right, you know. right, yeah. And um, certainly um, there were lots of people in Utah who continued to look to the Mormon past uh, for as a source of, of inspiration and to say we've moved too far into the into the modern era and we've abandoned things that were valuable and um, so Goodmanson is an example of that mm -hmm. yeah. you know, these, these tensions as we go back and forth and modernizing uh, you use the word incorporation right you're you're using a a, a term um, kind of a rubric under under which you're organizing all of this uh, uh, that uh, not only corporations are incorporated, but uh, but are moving into the future. Right, yeah. I mean, incorporate can mean several different things. And so, um, you're right, it can refer to the thing that we usually think of, which is, you know, the business model of incorporation with boards of directors and stockholders and um, rationalization and management of operations. But it also can refer to... Um, creating a merger or combining things together into a united whole. And so uh, we use that, the term that way in, in the book also, where um, Utahns are being incorporated into a larger American polity. And, uh, yeah, that's, 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 that's a key organizing theme that we have in the book. 
Let's take another break. When we come back more, we'll uh, conclude our discussion on the awkward state of Utah. This book's coming out shortly. The uh, One of the authors is Brian Cannon. He's with us uh, for the hour. You can join the uh, program at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com. Um, I want to talk about this passage in the book, it's just a theme, uh, quoting the book. It's, in a drawn-out confrontation, urban and industrial influences supplanted agrarian traditions, displacing people socially, draining the countryside of its population and vigor, and producing quite as critical a crisis in values and self-identification as had the Mormon question earlier. We'll talk about that and Native Americans and other topics following the break. What is a subject that you are passionate about? What do you know more about than most? Utah Public Radio wants you to share your knowledge and become a source for the Utah Public Insight Network, a new collaborative effort between UPR and the Salt Lake Tribune. Information you share could help our reporters create more in-depth stories on the things that you care about or more meaningful discussion on our flagship program, Access Utah. Become a source today. Join UPIN. For more information, visit us online at upr.org. Despite those new carbon rules from the White House, new coal mines continue to open up. The catch is that the coal isn't going where you'd think. And all for the greed of the excuse that we need energy. Well, this energy is going to Mexico. Yeah, I didn't see that one coming either. I'm Kai Rizdal. That story and the latest from Wall Street, fingers crossed, next time on Marketplace from APN. Tuesday night at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We reached our last segment uh, with Brian Cannon, co-author of The Awkward State of Utah. It's coming out soon from University of Utah Press. Uh, here's the, the passage I'd like to talk a bit, a bit about. Um, in a drawn-out confrontation, urban and industrial influences supplanted agrarian traditions, displacing people socially, draining the countryside of its population and vigor, and producing quite as critical a crisis in values and self-identification as had the Mormon question earlier. So this is one of the effects, I think, nationwide, including in Utah, of uh, industrialization. You, you People leave the farm, go where the jobs are, and uh, and the countryside is a lot different from uh, the way it was. And I guess that does produce a self-identification um, a crisis and a crisis in values. Absolutely, yeah. As um, Really, uh, it's, it's a story that has to do with... Um, the success of American industry in creating jobs in this era, and it also has to do with the success of American agriculture in the sense that, um, you know, as agriculture mechanized and as productivity increased, um, fewer farm workers were needed. And so people were being, in a sense, pushed off the farm uh, by the modernization of agriculture and pulled into the city by the demands for uh, workers there. But um, it it created a huge um, problem for for rural communities uh, as as their populations drained away and uh, you were left with communities that um, couldn't could no longer support institutions, uh, schools and churches and things of that nature, and so uh, a less vibrant uh, rural uh, life occurred. We see really the um, 
ultimate effects of this um, in the World War II era, where um, during the 1930s, uh, the federal government had carefully parceled out funding to ensure that um, funds were spent in rural and urban counties for improvements, uh, things like courthouses, construction of schools, the lane of water lines, and things of that nature. But in the Second World War, um, the military spending on the part of the federal government in Utah, which was huge, was concentrated largely along the Wasatch Front. It was concentrated in a handful of counties. And uh, the tremendous industrialization that occurred uh, during the war with the construction of places uh, like uh, the Geneva Steel Plant in Utah County or the Remington Arms Plant in Salt Lake County created a magnet uh, for people who are... uh, going where the jobs are, and so they're moving to the cities. And so by the end of, of that decade, um, by 1950, um, we, we tend to associate World War II with growth, but 17 of the state's 29 counties uh, had fewer residents in 1950 than they'd had in, in, in 1940. Mm. Um, so you see um, this, this tremendous, significant shift taking place with people moving out of the countryside into the cities, and you see different uh, values emerging also in the um, more heterogeneous and cosmopolitan urban areas. Um, And, uh, you know, the the decline of what the historian Robert Wiebe called the island communities, uh, self-sufficient, socially self-sufficient, small Entities where people were known on a first name basis and where gossip would uh, police the social order in the community uh, that that breaks down when people move into a large far more anonymous urban or suburban environment mm. We just have about two minutes left, and I, I want to have you do the very brief thumbnail sketch of uh, uh, I'll, I'll start you off with this sentence from the book. Utah's Indian populations reached their nadir, then began to rise in this in this era. Uh, how were the Indians incorporated, or, or to what extent were they? Yeah, well, um, the incorporation of American Indians was a contested uh, process. Their population did rebound uh, in, in the 20th century from that nadir. Um, there wasn't... Um, there were attempts on the part of the federal government to push for the assimilation of Indians, to get them to acquire homesteads, and... Um, Many of the Indians uh, resisted this. There were attempts in the First World War to draft American Indians. Uh, The Goshutes mounted a vigorous resistance, saying, uh, we abandoned war when we agreed to become U.S. citizens, and we don't think that we should have to to continue waging war. Um, American Indians are caught up in this Americanization process. They uh, vigorously, uh, by and large, supported the Second World War effort. Many of them served there, and many moved into the cities temporarily to take war work there. And uh, we are uh, out of uh, out of time. Maybe just one minute um, left here. I, w- I want us to return to Thomas Seymour. This is <laughs> it's quite poignant. A man who drove an ox cart, then ran a cafe at the airport. Um, as you reflect on on his life and the Utah's life in microcosm, um, 
What are your thoughts? Coming to the conclusion of the book as well. Well, it's it's uh, you, you see the the impact of Utah's incorporation within the national mainstream and Utah's embrace of technological developments and uh, cultural developments. Uh, the impact of global events, uh, the, the two world wars, um, travel across the nation and, and beyond the nation's boundaries. You see the ways in which these broad developments affected. Uh, everyday Utahns uh, like you and me, and um, that that for me is um, one of the one of the most striking things about about the book: the impact of these changes on on everyday uh, citizens of the state. The book is The Awkward State of Utah, Coming of Age in the Nation, 1896 to 1945. The authors are Charles S. Peterson and Brian Q. Cannon. Uh, it's co-published with the Utah State Historical Society and uh, U- University of Utah Press. be coming out soon. And uh, Brian Cannon is professor of history and director of the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. Brian Cannon, a pleasure. Welcome, or thank you for joining us today. You're very welcome. And uh, we're going to continue the history of the labor movement. On Thursday, we'll be talking about uh, Joe Hill, labor icon. We're coming up on the 100th anniversary of his execution in Utah. We'll be talking with uh, Salt Lake Tribune reporter and photographer. They're doing a whole uh, spread on this, and that'll be coming up on Thursday. Thanks for listening today. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. Though another national park in Utah is famous for arches, Zion National Park has more than you might imagine. Doubt it? Next time you visit the park, take a good look around. All the elements for arch building are readily on hand in Zion. A natural arch is formed when deep cracks penetrate into a sandstone layer. Erosion wears away the exposed rock layers and the surface cracks expand, isolating narrow sandstone walls or fins. Water, frost, and the release of tensions in the rock cause crumbling and flaking of the porous sandstone and eventually cut through some of the fins. The resulting holes become enlarged to arch proportions by rockfalls and weathering. Worldwide, arches number in the tens of thousands, and probably no place is more suited for their creation than the Colorado Plateau, home of Zion National Park. The vast geology of Zion has created environments as widespread and varied as the topography of the park itself. Hidden in its geologic grandeur are dozens, perhaps hundreds, of freestanding arches of all shapes and sizes. Although freestanding arches may be found in many different types of geologic formations, the Navajo sandstone formation, which makes up the magnificent cliffs of Zion, provides a fertile setting for the creation of these ribbons of rock. Among the many arches in Zion, two stand out, Crawford Arch and Kolob Arch. Crawford Arch is the most visible, clinging to the base of Bridge Mountain a thousand feet above the Zion Canyon floor. It's frequently pointed out to casual observers by an interpretive sign located on the front patio of the Human History Museum. The other famous arch in Zion is not so easily seen. It's located deep in the backcountry of the National Park's Kolob Canyons District and takes a seven-mile hike to reach. Kolob Arch is hidden in a small side canyon perched high on the canyon wall. For most of the 20th century, many believed that Kolob was in fact the world's largest freestanding arch, leading to years of debate and the motivation for various parties of adventurous thrill-seekers to climb on and around the massive span in hopes of securing a defensible measurement. The Natural Arch and Bridge Society long has pondered this question, and using lasers and an agreed-upon definition of what should be measured, says Landscape Arch, in Arches National Park, is the world's longest stone arch. 
but don't be surprised if the debate continues. The definition used by the society centers on the maximum horizontal extent of the opening. That opening beneath landscape arch measures right around 290.1 feet. The opening beneath Zion National Park Kolob Arch, which long had been in the running for world's largest, measures 287.4 feet, according to the group. Kolob Arch has become a favorite backcountry destination for thousands of visitors to Zion. They discover what most arch seekers will tell you. While beauty awaits every seeker at the end of the path, the reward begins unfolding at the trailhead. Anxious to see another arch but not ready for a 14-mile round-trip hike? Then head for Double Alcove Arch. A five-mile round trip along the Taylor Creek Trail takes you into a narrow box canyon toward the Double Arch Alcove, where erosion has carved out natural openings in the Navajo sandstone. For National Parks Traveler, I'm Patrick Cohn. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Science at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Thank you for listening to Access Utah. The time now is 10 o'clock.